Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual, Stay awesome and trust in the truth of God's Word. All right, looks like we are live. Everybody, welcome to Standing for Truth. I am your host, Donnie. And I am your co-host, Matt Moon. It is a privilege to have Dr. Dan Biddle from Genesis Apologetics back here with us for an important presentation and discussion on the Genesis flood. Now we've had Dr. Biddle here with us last year for an important show focusing on human evolution. So if you have not yet seen that, please make sure to check the description box of this video to check it out. Now, Matt, I'm gonna hand it over to you, uh, brother, for a brief introduction into our guest for today. Awesome, yeah, we have with us Dr. Biddle. He is a behavioral scientist and HR consultant with a doctorate in industrial organizational psychology. If that's not a tongue twister, I don't know what is. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he's also president of Genesis Apologetics, who have an app, by the way, that I like to remind people of. Hopefully you can see it right here. And he is president of Genesis Apologetics. He basically spends his time equipping pastors, parents, and students with biblical answers to evolutionary teachings. Daniel has trained thousands of students and biblical creationists with uh, how to fight against the craziness of evolution theory and at different uh, issues that might arise. He's also author of several creation-related publications. And if uh, I'm going to remind you guys, when you go to this uh, to download the app at the App Store, that you will be able to rate it as well. So help boost the algorithm and go check out that app because it's really good, really easy to use. And if you don't have answers, remember the answers do exist and you can find them on there. So. Great, thanks for having me guys. I appreciate it, uh, Dan, your ministry has been a huge help and a huge blessing to us. So thank you for all that you do and thank you for uh, giving us your time again for this important show. Yes, you're welcome. It's it's always a privilege to be on your show, and I love the work that you guys are doing. It's a great job. I appreciate that, uh, Doctor Biddle. Well, you know what? Let's let's kind of get right into it, and I'll hand you the floor, and we'll get right into your your presentation and talk for the day. Okay, terrific. You know, um, I, I was just thinking. I always like to start out with something a little bit new and different, and I have a good zinger for you guys here. So before we get into the flood talk. I want you to consider this, that I've spent about seven or eight years doing this type of work. Uh, sometimes, you know, a lot of times, sometimes uh, not so much time. And we've, we've fielded thousands of, of questions dealing with apologetics. And we've heard great questions and great answers. But just about three months ago, I heard the single best strategy for uh, addressing atheists that I think I've ever heard. And I wanted to share with you guys in your audience. So it, it goes like this. So if you're going to get into a dialogue with a self-proclaimed atheist or an agnostic or, or whatever, and they're going to they're going to want to jab you about questions about the fossil record or what about vertical evolution or what about homological structures or what about human and chimp DNA. And 
the most effective strategy I've recently learned is simply ask them, I'm going to ask, turn the tables and ask them, I'm going to ask you one question. And if you can answer my question with evidence, with scientific evidence, then you can ask me questions about my faith and Christianity and the Bible and Genesis and creation. And of course, many atheists will bite on that and say, oh my gosh, I would love to, to just tackle your one question. And the one question is simply this, ask them, how did non-living matter become alive? Mm. And if they can answer that one question with the, with the theory that has evidence to it, where it's been scientifically verified, then they can have permission to ask you about anything they want, vertical evolution, homological structures, whatever it is. And if you're an honest scientist or an honest researcher, you'll find there is no answer to that question. They don't have one. And if so, my, my response to the atheist will, will be to then, then to say, well, if you can't get the car started, you can't drive it down the street. If you can't explain to me with evidence how non-living matter became alive through the Miller-Urey experiment or anything like it, or maybe some bacteria they supposedly found on Mars, if you can't replicate a model scientifically to show me how biogenesis got started, we can't even have a conversation because you're operating with just as much faith as I am. So anyhow, I thought that would be a good strategy to share with your, with your viewers. And of course, it's not to really open the door necessarily to having a, a debate or a battle because a lot of times uh, atheists don't convert because it's a, it's a heart problem and not a head problem. Um, but but, but anyhow, anyhow, I thought that was a real meaningful way to, to go about it. And then the other thing to consider is that when you're having such a conversation, say, look, if I were able to convince you, would you change your mind? And of course, many uh, honest atheists are going to say no, because I'm stuck with my beliefs because it justifies and supports my lifestyle. So anyhow, I thought that was something that was very useful to share. Uh, Pat Roy came up with that, and I thought that was a really useful technique. He's been working on it with people that write in. He's, he's actually able to turn from that and show how people are really having just as much faith in their worldview system as he is as, as a creationist. So if you can get them there, it really opens the, the, the pathway for a more meaningful dialogue. Amen. All right, so so uh, thanks for letting me share that little bonus there on the, on the front that. side of our talk it. here. And we're probably gonna go over on time because we've got a lot of stuff to cover. But if anyone has questions, um, there is my email address, just dan at genesisapologetics.com. And are my slides advancing okay on your guys' side? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay, great. So just a little bit about our ministry first. We have a series of movies that, that we've uh, done. They're all free. They're all on the, uh, on the internet. We've got uh, Genesis Impact, Debunk Evolution, Seven Myths, Foundations, and then our new one that's going to be coming out in the theaters in about a year and a half. It's called The Ark and the Darkness. And we'll be talking a little bit more about that later. Uh, we have a YouTube channel with, I think, about 114,000 subscribers now, about 10.7 million views. We do speak a lot at local Christian schools. Our, our vice president is actually going out to Texas to do some speaking, and then uh, and then the L.A., Southern California area after that. We give a lot of uh, local church presentations on the weekend, and we have an annual conference. And you can see the replays for that conference on g1conference.com. Uh, our main offerings are, are these, and I'm, I'm not trying to sell anything. They're all free. If you have a fifth to 10th grader and they're taking a life science class or a biology class where they're getting the download of evolution teaching, which is uh, taught in public school along 10 different pillars that they teach, 
Uh, you can go to debunkevolution.com and we have a free training program there that you can use. Or for high schoolers or college age folks, you can go to sevenmyths.com and you can get your student uh, bootstrapped with some good, good roots and, and uh, solid faith foundation before they go off to college. Uh, one of our, our most popular books is called The Answers Books, uh, Answers to the Top 50 Questions About Genesis Creation and Noah's Flood. Uh, we get thousands of questions every year from people through social media and our email. And uh, we developed a list of the top 50 questions we always get asked and develop some, uh, some strong answers for those. In fact, most of those questions also relate back to videos that can be accessed through the book or on our website. And I think, Matt, uh, you mentioned we have our mobile app. We have over 100,000 installs right now. It's a free mobile app. And this actually plums right into our YouTube videos. So whatever we have on YouTube is also going to be put into our mobile app there. And we cover all kinds of topics like human evolution and evolution theory and fossils and transitional forms. It's a free app. And a lot of people have, uh, have said that they, they enjoy this app while going through high school and college. And here's our movie that's coming out in theaters in uh, 2023. It's called The Ark and the Darkness, uh, Unearthing the Mysteries of Noah's Flood. Uh, we're working with Sevenfold Films and Ralph Streen, uh, the director of the Genesis Paradise Lost movie, uh, to come out with this one. And it's going to focus on the evidence uh, that, that shows that Noah's Flood really happened and that Earth is, was recently flooded by a worldwide catastrophe. And, uh, and that will be coming out uh, probably July 2023. And this presentation is actually kind of a sneak preview into a lot of the evidences that we're going to be covering in that movie. Uh, we've already done the filming part of the movie. We're over at Answers in Genesis Ark Encounter, uh, the, their big full-size replica of Noah's Ark over there, and interviewed four leading experts from Answers in Genesis. Uh, then we carried over to Liberty University in Virginia and continued with seven more PhD experts on archaeology and the flood, geology, things like that. So uh, we're really excited for that movie to come out. And we have a book that goes along with the movie that you can order through our website or on Amazon. This carries uh, the same name. So this uh, presentation is also going to cover a lot of the more in-depth evidence that is in our YouTube video called Noah's Flood and Catastrophic Plate Tectonics. That video is up to about 2.7 million views now, which as far as we know, it's, it's the most watched uh, video uh, on, on YouTube about Noah's Flood. So we're really excited that that's getting some traction. It's only 23 minute, minutes long and it's got a lot of really great condensed evidence on Noah's Flood. And here's a, a question uh, that I like to pose to people. So the Bible makes the the biggest claim about a worldwide cataclysm of any religious text in history. So if the Bible makes this claim, we would hope that it's true. And we would also hope that it's, if it talks about making a claim of a worldwide calamity, worldwide catastrophe, that it sh we should have evidence for it all over the place. And that's why I think that more ink has been spilled over the Genesis flood than any other event in the Bible, Genesis chapter six through nine, describe the longest account for any single event in the entire entirety of Scripture. So the the credibility of the whole Bible really depends on the flood being true or not. I mean, you've got Moses talking about it, and several of the books talk about it. You've got Peter and Paul talk about the flood in the New Testament. Jesus himself referenced the flood as a real historical event that was worldwide in nature. It took everybody out in Matthew 24. So 
I would say that the, the historicity and the credibility of this event happening really underpins the entirety of scripture. So when did the flood happen? Well, there's there's two different camps. Most people lean what's called the, on the, the Masoretic textual tradition, holding that the flood was about 2348 BC. Uh, there's another camp that holds what's called the Septuagint tradition. We don't have too much time to get into these two different traditions now, but, but if you hold to the Septuagint, the furthest back that you could place the flood, at least biblically, would be about 3168. So there we have the, the bracketing range biblically of when we can put Noah's flood. It lasted for one year. Uh, many people think it was only for 40 days, but that was just the torrential rain part of the flood. The Bible is very clear that the water uh, actually rose up for 150 days until the flood zenith or peaked at about 150 days. The waters began to decrease for the next 150 days, and then earth dried out for about 70 days. So we have a, a one-year-long process, and we have a very, very sturdy arc to withstand that process. You see here the, the diagram talks about the length was at least 450 uh, feet long. Uh, some people, by the way, you you interpret a cubit, uh, which is the your elbow to the very tip of your middle finger, can be between about 18 and 22 inches. Could make the arc a little bit longer than that, uh, but the Bible says it was 300 cubits by 50 cubits by 30 cubits, which interestingly is about the same dimensional proportion that today's ocean barges have. So it's a very, very sturdy vessel. Didn't have to sail anywhere. All it had to do was stay afloat for the 371 day process. And there's actually been studies that have looked at the seaworthiness of the ark by simulating uh, waves of certain heights and throwing things what's called like the Beaufort storm scale at an ark model. And this, this Chriso study that was done in 1993 at the Korean Naval Center basically proved that the biblical dimensions that came straight from God to Noah on building the ark represented the most stable, comfortable, balanced ark of all the different models that they tried. They tried, tried 12 different models, and the biblical one was the most stable and the most seaworthy. So great evidence that uh, God, of course, knew what he was doing. The next thing I want to cover is, is the fact that if you look into the fossil record, it's very, very clear from an evidence standpoint that there used to be a world that was different uh, with respect to flora and fauna than the world that we have today. And scripture bears that out very clearly by saying in 2 Peter 3, 6, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. So we're in world version number two right now. So what did world version number one look like? Well, it looked much different. In world vision, version number one, we probably had higher or different oxygen levels. The barometric pressures might have been different. There's even secularists like uh, Peter Ward who have published this book called Out of Thin Air. They're now establishing based upon some samples that they're taking that there really might have been higher oxygen levels back before in the past. And that's the only way that these huge creatures could fly and get around uh, is in a world that's not like ours today. We have these huge sauropods and huge flying reptiles. We've got dragonflies in the fossil record that have a two and a half foot wingspan, would not fly very well today in, in today's Earth's climate. We even have these huge giant fungi that can grow to 20 feet tall, gigantic mushrooms. Here's an artist's rendition of what those things might have looked like. Just a different tropical lush 
paradise. And you wonder, you know, where did all the coal and oil came from? Well, we drill down nowadays under hundreds of feet of sediment to get access to this world that was washed over with cycling tsunamis. So this world that then was is buried and now is forming the coal and oil layers that are hundreds of feet under current sediment. You also have things like this huge eight foot long centipede could not probably operate too well in today's earth environment. Uh, but the fossil record bears these things out. There were these huge creatures that could not live uh, very well today. Of course, I think the best example is a sauropod dinosaur, which were really better suited for the past world, the world that then was, because if you look at their little tiny nostrils, which are about the size of a modern day horse, you'd have a really hard time getting enough oxygen into that creature for it to live today. Um, some sauropod dinosaurs called Patagotitans uh, are enormous, or Argentinosaurus. There's a number of them that have been discovered. Some of them push 130 feet long and weigh over 77 tons. Just how in the world in today's Earth environment with our pressures and our oxygen levels are you going to get enough O2 in that animal to live? And the answer is you probably couldn't. It lived in a much different, lush, tropical, high-oxygen environment. Same thing with these huge flying uh, reptiles like Quetzalcoatlus, which is the largest flying reptile ever found. 53-foot wings, wingspan weighed at least 600 pounds. In today's Earth environment, the flight physics just don't work on a creature like this. Um, some people have tried to estimate it and say, well, you know, just to get its little toes up off the ground, you have to hit its wings with at least 16 miles an hour of wind. So maybe it could spend its time you know, crawling all the way up to a clip and jumping off and hang gliding and doing that for an hour or two at the side at a time and riding the thermals, but then it'd have to walk all the way back up and, and do it again. But maybe in the, the pre-flood world, it could just flap its wings and take off. And we know that these things thrive because they're in all three major layers of the Mesozoic. So, uh, so these creatures uh, did live before the flood. So next, I, I want to look at a little bit of a technical issue uh, dealing with the Genesis lifespans. Uh, so it's going gonna, it's gonna to get into some, st uh, to some statistics and some mathematical concepts, but please stay with me here. I, this stuff is fun to me. I spent about 20 years uh, testifying as an expert on statistics and research uh, in state and federal court cases, worked on over 100 court cases. And so I really enjoy statistics. And when you apply the tools of the secular statistical field onto the Genesis lifespans, we're going to discover some really amazing findings that emerge. So here's the data. This is the lifespans of all of the patriarchs who lived before the flood and after the flood. There's 20 some of them. So you see on the, the far left side of your screen there, the average lifespan of like Adam and his son Seth and his son Enoch all the way down the line, they averaged a lifespan of about 912 years when you take out Enoch because he was a uh, transposer or, or actually one of the guys. I think we see Enoch still in there. But uh, yeah, it was Enoch who was taken out when he was 375 years old. But if you, you add up all those guys and average them, you got about 912 years. But then something suddenly happens after the flood. The lifespans begin decreasing slowly, gradually, and exponentially. They don't fall off of a cliff. They start gradually going down. So what on earth is going on there? And why do they start living shorter and shorter lifespans? 
Well, in comes geneticist Dr. John Sanford from Cornell University. He's a geneticist. Uh, his gene gun, uh, called the Biolistic Particle Gun, is even in the Smithsonian Museum. Amazing guy. He studied this and, and, and learned that the reason why they're having declining lifespans is called genetic entropy. And that happens when you have an original population before the flood of millions of people with all of their genetic variety. Then you have a bottleneck event like the flood where eight of them get onto a ship for a year and everybody outside the, the ark dies. So you have a population of eight surviving individuals. You have Noah and his wife and Shem, Ham and Japheth and their wives. And they get off and start breeding and breeding and breeding into a new population. Well, when you do that, you compress the gene pool into just eight people and you begin inbreeding with that remnant of eight, you begin exponentially increasing the mutation load in our gene pool. And the resulting effect would be people starting to live less and less uh, lifespans. So, you know, their lifespans are going to be shortened. And that's exactly what we see in the data when we plot it out. When we plot it out statistically and throw a curve on it, we see it has an R-square value of 95, which is off the charts. The statistical probability for this is less than one chance in a quadrillion. So there's something going on with this data that cannot be invented by a human, the, the writer of, of, of this information, because it covers 2,900 years, and there are multiple writers involved, either passing down this information or producing this information. So it falls along what's called an exponential power law curve. And it's so strong that it's statistically significant. So when I would testify in court, in order for something to be admissible in a state or federal court, I would have to say, Your Honor, my findings are so strong on this court case that it's likely to, to occur by chance and less than with a less than 5% likelihood. So I'm 95% sure that what we're saying here is, is, a, is a phenomenon that's in the data. It's a trend that's statistically significant and it's not happenstance. All I'd have to do to get it in a federal court as admissible is hit that 5% level of chance. Well, what's the result of this analysis here? When you look at the declining lifespans and plot out, well, here's our 5% probability. It's way, way, way off the charts. It goes down to 0.0001 and you keep adding zeros for a long, long, long time. Whatever is going on with this data is not a man-made phenomenon unless the writer knew advanced logarithmic math in order to somehow plot this out along a perfectly sloping declining curve, which is just pretty much impossible. There's something else going on with the data itself that is driving this phenomenon. So it's, in fact, it's so strong, we can take this data and we can plot out and make predictions. So as a statistician, all you'd have to do is tell me how many generations away from Noah an individual is in the Bible, and I can predict and bracket for you with, with a great level of certainty how long they're going to live. So that's how this model is so profound and so strong because it plots along that curve and the statistical mapping jumps right on top of it and says, look at that, there's something going on here and the statistical model can grab it and connect to it in a way that's so strong you can make predictions with it. So how in the world is some ancient sheep herder 
who is supposedly writing the book of Genesis down on animal skins, coming up with writing over 20 or 30 people's lifespans out on parchment paper in a way that's so systematically declining that it fits along a power law curve. It's impossible. There's no one back in those times who could have dreamt that level of math up. So you're forced with really two options. Either these lifespans are real and they're really how long the people were living and they fit a biological decay curve, or you've got some writers over 2,900 years, multiple writers conspiring together in a multi-generational lie who knew polynomial advanced math to plot something along a power law curve. It's impossible. It represents true, real data. So here's the 2,900 years of biblical history. Here's all the authors that would have either contributed to this, to this account or written the account or passed the account on. How in the world are these guys in ancient times over nearly three millennia going to pass down the data and uh, that that's fictitious, that's a lie, that also fits along a power curve so well that they knew exponential math? That's just, just not going to happen. So what are the implications of this? Well, the Bible in Luke chapter 3 takes these 70-plus genealogies and goes from Christ all the way through King David, all the way through Abraham, back to Noah, and then goes into the pre-flood patriarchs. So we have now a composite situation where we've got the New Testament and the Old Testament validated together in authoritative, inerrant, inspired scripture in Luke chapter 3 that strings these 70 patriarchs together. And right there in the middle of your screen, you see where, where, the, where the lifespans begin shortening with, with, with these guys that are uh, going up to Noah and right afterwards. So it really solidifies the whole of Scripture because the whole of Scripture is talking about these guys. So there's no gaps. There's no, uh, you know, there's no fake data being inserted. These are real lifespans for real individuals. So it really validates uh, Scripture when you step back and look at it that way. So what are, what are the implications of this curve? So when you look at the statistical curve and you plot it out over 2,900 years, here's what it does for us as researchers. First, it takes the pre-flood population reduction or the bottleneck event and validates that. It also validates the fact that we all came from the same family because we had an increase in our mutational gene load. It also validates that people lived longer in a different world than our current world. It validates that people lived decreasingly shorter lives after the flood. And it validates the pre-flood, post-flood world distinctions, that there used to be a world like there was back then, and we're in a different world now. And the flood was a severing line, the demarcation between world version one and world version number two. And of course, it validates the genealogies of our Savior, that they're real people with real lifespans, and the Bible's history can be counted on and trusted. So I would say it really validates the whole of Scripture based upon what we just reviewed over the last five or ten minutes. Okay, so now let's get into some more practical questions about things like we get this all the time. How did all the animals fit? Or people... Uh, an objection we hear frequently is like, oh, Dr. Biddle, there's 1.5 million species on, alive on Earth today. How in the world could they all fit? Well, well, the answer is they could fit very, very easily because we don't have to take them at the species level. For example, if you look at the wolf there, Canis lupus familiaris, 
Um, there are 339 breeds of dogs that all go back to a wolf. Same thing with horses. You can take the smallest horse and the largest horse today, over 336 breeds, and they're all still interfertile. If you look at the Ursidae family with bears, all Noah had to do is take two of the bear kind, a male and a female, because of if you even look at the family level with bears, five of the eight species in the bear family are still interfertile. Same thing with chickens. You, all you have to do is take a set of chickens because there are 68 breeds of chickens and they're all interfertile as well. So most experts nowadays say you just need a few thousand different kinds of animals on board the ark to reproduce all the different varieties and species that we see alive today. So here's what it looks like from a, from a, a grid work here. From, a, from another example, if you look at the, the, the bush example on your left here, that's the secular idea that we went from goo to creatures like the zoo all the way to me and you, you know, through the, the tree or the evolution of life. But we don't believe that, that that's true. We think what, what the data fits better is that God created after their own kind, which he says 10 times in Genesis 1 that he created after their kinds. And then there was some speciation and some variation of those kinds for about 1,700 years before the, the, the flood. And then the flood event happened, and then these pairs of animals get off of the ark, and then they start speciating and reproducing and changing and adapting, fulfilling their command as animals to multiply and fill all of the earth, just like God commanded. So next, let's look at one of my, my favorite topics, which is the mechanics of the flood. And uh, we'll look at some key flood verses here. Uh, one of the biggest clues, I think, in scripture uh, is Genesis 7:11 that says in the 600th year of Noah's life in the second month, in the 17th day of the month, the same day, were all the fountains of the great deep broken up and the windows of heaven were open. So that's really the key. All of the fountains of the great deep were broken up. So something started on the ocean floor and it wasn't just one, it was the fountains of the great deep. It was all of them on the same day began breaking open. The, the Bible also talks about the zenith of the flood, about a day 150, where the water prevailed about 15 cubits, which is about 22 feet over the highest mountains on the earth. And then it dried out. Then the water receded for about 150 days, and then earth dried out for about 70. In come the, the, the crew that framed the theory of catastrophic plate tectonics. It was these this panel of six individuals. Uh, that came up with the theory in the, in the early 90s about uh, Noah's flood called catastrophic plate tectonics, an amazing group of scientists. All of them have PhDs in their respective fields. And here's what they came up with, where the fountains of the great deep burst open. It started on the ocean floor, came up on top of the ocean. We have linear steam jets coming up, bursting open, coming back down as torrential rain. We had normal rain coming down as well but it started on the ocean floor. And it's quite obvious that this happened because if we look at Earth today, we have a linear rift system that encompasses Earth 1.9 times, and it's a circuit of 40,000 miles worth of rift systems. And this is where we get subduction zones. This is where we get a lot of the volcanism that happens on these splits that are, that are going on. Earth is cracked like an egg to, with a circuit of 40,000 miles of these linear rifts that go all over the place. 
Here's a, an animation that Dr. John Baumgartner came up with. He was a scientist at Los Alamos National Laboratories, and he's been modeling this for over 40 years, and he's proven now that Pangaea broke up. He's got the directions, the coordinates, the speed, everything else. When these continents split, when the fountains of the Great Deep broke open, the continents began moving apart from a Pangaea-like formation at walking speed or jogging speed, about five miles an hour, they began being catastrophically pushed apart. So we don't have continental drift, we have continental sprint that was going on during the flood. It's quite obvious that this happened when you look at the largest uh, linear rift, it's called the Mid-Atlantic Ridge. Uh, it's a 10,000 mile tear that goes down. We're splitting continents apart and when you look at the map on the right there, you can see from this bathymetric map, a map with all the water removed, that there's actually big hills coming down perpendicular to all of the, to the, to the split there. And you can see how the continents perfectly fit back together when they were once together, but they were catastrophically torn apart. It's a very obvious, uh, like a baseball seam scar that's uh, ripped down the earth for 10,000 miles. So when that happened, we had a lot of seafloor spreading that was going on. So as the fountains of the Great Deep broke open, we have magma coming up from, from underneath, cresting on in the, underneath the ocean on the ocean floor, forming new seafloor, and then spreading to the left and right from each spreading zone. And here's an animation showing that what that must look like. So there we have the seafloor spreading, and it went all over the Earth. There, there again is a mid-Atlantic ridge that we can take a look at there. And when this is going on, we can see it also caused the tsunamis that are responsible for burying billions of dead things in the mud layers that we find them in today. So as we have that seafloor spreading, we have the subducting seafloor spray going uh, plate going underneath the landmass. So it's being pushed and pushed and pushed. Then convection happened and the plate begins getting pulled underneath the landmass. And as it's spreading at about five miles an hour, it hits that landmass and binds and begins building up tension. This is how the earthquake happened in Japan and Haiti and a lot of bigger other earthquakes happen in our time. And when that breaks and releases, it causes a tsunami that goes two directions, one back out to sea and the other one comes up on land. And if you have that process going on rapidly during the flood, you're going to have cycles of tsunami of tsunamis coming up on the land masses, burying the dinosaur creatures and the rest of the fossil record in layers, which is exactly how we see them buried. We've got 14 states and three countries, a million square miles of these dead dinosaurs. So every circle you see there is a mass burial of dinosaurs that were buried catastrophically during the flood. That's a huge kill zone. It's 1,800 miles long by a thousand miles wide and it's 1 million square miles. And it's right here in the middle of America. So I would say the evidence for the flood is obvious, but it's been obfuscated by the world. It's been hidden, it's been tucked away and covered with theories and philosophies of evolution. But there we have it right there. The most obvious thing you can see about the flood, how do you bury a million square miles worth of animals? There is a picture showing a helicopter, and we've, we've got a T-Rex dinosaur there, one of the biggest ones found, buried under 100 feet of mud in the middle of Montana. 
how do you do that? How would an asteroid do that? How is an asteroid going to bury a T-Rex under 100 feet of layered mud? It makes a lot more sense that tsunamis are coming in from the coast in succession, in rapid succession, layering and building up these creatures and built, burying them under sediment. There is a site in North Dakota called the Tanis site. Again, we have multiple layers. You zoom out from that, from that. We have that whole area there is a dinosaur swampland where lots and lots of dinosaurs were buried. But we see these features uh, all over the middle of, uh, of uh, North America. Well, we know that this subduction happened because the Farallon plate that came in under California and subducted from seafloor spreading is still there. This is an underground radar. They can see that the temperature zone of, the, of this thing, it's still there. It's right underneath North America. So that plate came in, hit uh, the left coast of America and began diving underneath. And there's where it resides today with a heat zone map. So it definitely happened. It's along these fault lines where 90% of the earthquakes happen today on these subduction faults. It's called a ring of fire. So the plates are still subducting today, only much more slowly than they were during the flood, but they're still responsible for causing over 90% of today's earthquakes. The next uh, evidence we can take a quick look at is called fossil correlation. And that shows basically that we can prove that the continents were put together in a Pangaea-like formation because we have the same types of plants and animals that were living on each side of these continents before the continents were catastrophically pushed apart. Here's some good evidence for that. So each one of these green or yellow dots is a massive dinosaur fossil grave. So every little circle that you see there represents thousands or hundreds of thousands or in some case millions of dead dinosaurs. So if we fit these continents back together, here we have the pre-flood atmosphere. Do you notice how these circles are all pushed together with the same types of creatures? And in fact, if you do the counts on the types of creatures, we have one congruent ecosystem where these same types of creatures were living together and then they were split apart and they're now over 3,000 miles separate. But think about this for a minute. They weren't killed and then buried. They, they were buried and then killed. There, you can go to these fossil sites today on the edge and the, on the margins of these continents and you can find the animals buried in the very mud that killed them. That's the key to understanding this. They were killed by the mud that you find them in today. So we can split it back apart and we can see how they fit perfectly, put them back together, same ecosystem. They all got wiped out as it was split apart. They were buried by cycling tsunamis. Okay, then we have folded rock layers that are all over the world. You cannot fold uh, rock layers when they're, when they're hardened. You can't do that over millions of years. They have to be laid down wet and pliable and then like wet cement and then eventually folded. And we have examples of these folds all over the world. Here's one on the left that's called a recumbent fold that actually buckled back onto itself uh, going back 180 degrees. Uh, there's another one here that's right in California. We see all these bends. Those bends and folds happened while the layers were laid down wet and they were folded while they were still wet, not before they had, uh, not after they had lithified. These folds and bends are all over the place. In fact, this one, you can see the size of trees there on the bottom. 
So, uh, so it's a huge example of bends and folds that were happening as these layers were laid down in succession. They're, uh, they're just all over the world. Just more, some couple more examples there. Here's a fun one that uh, Dr. Uh, Snelling from Answers in Genesis went there. This is in the Grand Canyon. You can see people there for scale along this huge massive bend and fold here. Dr. Snelling went there and took 30 or 40 samples, fist-sized samples of those rocks before the, the, the fold in the middle of the fold at, at the, the part where the fold was most extreme and then after it. Took them in for chemical analysis and sure enough, what did he find? The chemical signature of the, the rock content at the, at, the, at the peak of the fold is the same as the fold before it, or as the rocks before it and afterwards. In other words, there was no chemical differences. The temperatures of the rocks that were at those three different marker points before and at the peak and then after the fold there are at the, they're basically the same, showing it happened when the temperature was about the same when these rocks were laid down and was buckled and folded, not over heat and pressure over time, but it happened when they were laid down wet at the same time. He just came out with those results uh, a couple of years ago. Here's what it looks like on an animation with some of these subduction things happen. And that's how you can get the ocean floor and push it up 30,000 feet like Mount Everest, which is where we find a lot of marine life way, way high up on mountains. Those clams didn't walk and crawl all the way 30,000 feet high up to Mount Everest. They were pushed up catastrophically during the flood. And that's why we find clams and seashells at every mountaintop, most major mountain ranges around the world, including Mount Everest. In the, in, in the marine limestone there, you find all kinds of sea-dwelling creatures that were on the ocean floor that were pushed up catastrophically during the flood, and they now reside at 29,000 feet. What could do that? It had to be a catastrophic flood. So that's what's, what's going to be explaining that massive fossil kill zone that we see. You know, it's, remember, it's a million square miles 14 states, three countries, a huge, huge kill zone. It had to be something like a flood that could pull that off. So next, let's look at the dinosaur taphonomy, which is the, the, the a study of how animals are buried and killed and, and what type of matrix that they're found in and everything. Well, if we start uncovering dinosaurs today in America, we find that they're buried in a composite of three different types of substances, mud, sand and ash. So however they got there in the middle of America, a million square miles of them had to be some event that was worldwide that would produce enough mud, sand and ash to bury these dinosaurs under 50, 100, 150 feet of mud in some places. So what on earth could do that? What type of mechanism, a worldwide event is going to bury a million square miles of dinosaurs in those three substances. Well, nothing but a flood. You've got catastrophic plate tectonics, which explains how the subducting plate is gonna create tsunamis in succession that are gonna bring mud and sand up onto the, the earth, up onto the middle of North America, for example. And we've got massive volcanism that's going to explain through sub subduction how that type of ash is also going to be produced in, in mass and it's going to be uh, contributing to burying the dinosaurs. In fact, in Southern California, there's a, a volcanic system there called the Independence Dyke Swarm. It's almost 400 miles long. It's a linear rift that happened during the flood. 
that produced 4,000 cubic miles of ash. Mount St. Helens, when it blew up even recently, was just a small fraction of that. But this, the Independence Dyke Swarm, you know, secular experts say it produced 4,000 cubic miles of ash, which was basically enough to bury half of America in ash. And that's why we find dinosaurs today buried in those three things. What could do that? What can explain it? Only a worldwide flood. Uh, next, we have the uh, worldwide coal deposits. Again, we have this lush pre-flood world. Uh, many uh, dinosaur habitats were forested, some were jungled, and then you've got all these things, all these areas being buried by catastrophic subduction and the tsunamis that are coming coming up. So we've got these huge coal seams. Some of them are up to nine, 90 feet thick. Uh, this one, the Powder River uh, Basin, is huge. You can see for scale these trucks there. Take a look at these guys here in a, in a van. You've got, you know, it's nearly 100 feet high. Where did all that coal come from? Well, it had to be from a huge world filled with plant life, like a jungle or forest that was buried catastrophically under sediment. So we have these coal deposits all over the world. So it also had to be a worldwide event. Uh, same thing, you know, stuff like, like this is not going on today. You have to ask yourself that question. What happened in the past to produce these coal deposits all over the world that's not going on today? No one's ever seen something like this on a worldwide basis bury coal. It had to be a huge catastrophic flood. So we're going to wrap up pretty quick here with a quick tour of the flood and the dinosaur extinction. So the, the world says if you go to every leading natural history museum, you're going to say, well, we know how the dinosaurs uh, went extinct. It was the Chicxulub asteroid that came down and nailed the Yucatan Peninsula in Mexico. So there you can see here on my screen in the, the very bottom center, that's where they say it hit. Well, if it hit there and generated, even if it was a major asteroid that hit there and generated tsunamis that came up and buried parts of, of Texas, how in the world did it miss a million square miles of dinosaurs in the middle of America that are buried under 100 feet of mud? How did that happen? Uh, it had to be a worldwide flood. There's where the dinosaurs are buried in the middle of Montana under 100 feet of mud. Here's where the Chicxulub asteroid hit. It's 2,000 miles away from that kill zone. So it completely missed that entire area. Here's a simulation. You've got the asteroid, it hits, creates some tsunamis that come up to the southern parts of North America. Maybe it buries Florida, a few other places. It didn't hit the middle of America where we've got the largest dinosaur barrier burial in the entire world. Definitely does not fit. And here's the one in North Dakota of all places buried under 100 feet of mud, the Tanis location. Look how far away that is from the Chicxulub asteroid. What makes more sense is here we see the tsunami simulation coming up over California there, coming up way over onto the land in succession as the Farallon plate is subducting. It's going to be bringing up mud and sand all the way over to the middle of America, burying these creatures catastrophically. Okay, so uh, we're going to take a very quick tour through the 10 lines of evidence for dinosaur extinction by the flood. So we believe that the dinosaurs are everywhere. That's just a, that's a, that's a good factor that we have a vast extent of dinosaurs. They were furiously and rapidly buried because we find them disarticulated or torn apart. They were quickly buried in mud and in ash. They were buried simultaneously in groups in many places. 
Uh, they're mixed with marine life. Isn't that interesting that we find the dinosaurs mixed with marine life? Sometimes they're found buried without juveniles, which is very interesting. We'll take a look at that. Uh, they're buried uh, with their bones still intact. And when we take those bones now, in, in today's environment, 4,400 years after these creatures were buried, and we take their bones into a laboratory, we're now up, according to secular science alone, not creationist publications, secular science has established that dinosaur bones today have 16 different types of bioorganic materials still existent in their bones. They're not petrified rocks. They're not bones that have been replaced by, by the, the minerals in the groundwater. They're not, they're not just fossilized rocks. They're still organic bones. And then we can show that by learning that there's 16 different types of bioorganics found in dinosaur bones. Things like proteins and collagen and red blood cells and blood vessels. We also find carbon-14 in dinosaur bones, and we find dinosaurs mummified. So the biblical flood is going to be able, be able to explain that, and evolution over millions of years definitely cannot. Those 10 factors form what's called an evidence mosaic, where multiple different lines of evidence all point to the same conclusion. So for example, here we have all the Allosaurus creatures buried in the Jurassic layers, now take a look at the circles here in the middle of America where all the allosaurus are and keep your eyes on those circles as I fly in the sauropods. Look at that, they're buried in the same places. Same with stegosaurus, buried a lot in the same places. When we fly them all in at the same time, why did these creatures die in the same areas? You know, if it was gradually over millions of years, we would expect that they would have distributed around and roamed around and maybe all the stegosaurus would have been over here, sauropods over in that region. No, something hit these creatures simultaneously, rolled them up catastrophically and buried them in the same regions. What could explain that? Nothing but a worldwide flood. These bones are scrambled when we find them only 97%. Uh, of the bones in America, uh, representing uh, you know thousands of creatures, are scrambled. Only three percent of dinosaur bones are found complete, where we still find the animal intact. So they were buried furiously. Uh, Dr. Carl Werner's book talks a lot about that that evidence, and we find dinosaurs all over in museums today in this famous death pose. Look at their necks arched back as they're dying in suffocation. They're choking for mud trying to breathe, and they've actually replicated this by burying chickens uh, alive. Unfortunately, they did that, but people have proven scientifically that as they're asphyxiating and dying, being buried in mud, their heads and their necks will arch backwards. And that's exactly what we see these theropods in, in museums around America buried in this death pose because they were dying, choking on mud. Here's even a huge, massive T-Rex with its neck being arched back dying while it was being encased in mud. Here's a place called the Dinosaur Provincial Park in Canada. You can look over 14 miles in this region and you can see thousands of specimens representing multiple genera, 12 different families of dinosaurs, and they're buried with fish and turtles and amphibians and all kinds of other creatures. What could do that? What could take an area as far as the eye can see, a 14 mile stretch, and bury dinosaurs with fish and turtles. It had to be a worldwide catastrophe. Here's some signs in the middle of America when you just take a tour through that dinosaur kill zone and take pictures of secular museum signs. Look at what they say. 
dinosaurs, fish, and clams buried in a 100-yard-wide flood deposit, or 10,000 dinosaurs buried by a catastrophic inundation, or hundreds of dinosaurs buried together with shark teeth, or a large ancient flood washed over the starfish all at once, entombing them, it's quite obvious that they're talking about a worldwide flood that's responsible for burying these creatures. This is one of my favorite pieces of evidence here. This is Dr. John Horner. He's a secular paleontologist. Look at the, the title of his book here that's called Digging Dinosaurs, The Search That Unraveled the Mystery of Baby Dinosaurs. So why did someone write a book about a mystery dealing with baby dinosaurs? Well, what he found was a kill zone that was over one and a quarter miles long, directional notice, it was from east to west. They found up to 30 million fossil fragments there, a tomb of 10,000 adult myosauras. Not a single youth was found among them. So how do you take 10,000 dinosaurs, huge dinosaurs, and bury them together over a one mile long strip of land that's laid down directionally and every single creature there was between nine and 23 feet. Where did the young go? Where's the babies? Where's the eggs? They were all ditched when these adults sensed something so dramatic and so climatic coming up that they bolted. They ran leaving, leaving Junior Fido behind and they're booking for it trying to survive and there they go. The, only the adults are buried together. They ditched all the, lung as all the young as they're fleeing for their lives. But I think the most convincing evidence is this. The, the over 50 peer-reviewed scientific journals nowadays have established that there's 16 different types of bioorganics in dinosaur bones found today. Things like FEX and histones and proteins and skin pigments and keratin and unfossilized bone red blood cells, blood vessels. You guys, we have to wake up. What is this stuff doing in dinosaur bones now? If it's 65 million years old, it would all be gone. You don't. You hardly even need to run a scientific analysis that doesn't pass the smell test. In fact, uh, looking at the smell test, some of the experts that are digging up these bones in the Hell Creek Formation say that the, the ground in which they're excavating these dinosaur bones from still has the stench of death to it. And then they're rushing some of these bones into refrigerated trucks as soon as they find them, trying desperately to recapture dinosaur DNA because people know uh, internally uh, that these bones are not that old. Here's what it looks like when you take a triceratops horn and demineralize it and stretch it under a microscope. It's still soft and flexible because you take away the hard bone mineral and you still have tissue that's left over inside of these dinosaur bones. How does that look for an 80 million year old bone? It's not 80 million years old. It's only 4,400 years old buried by a flood. It would not be soft and stretchable if it was you know, 80 million years old. It would just be turned into a rock. There we have a blood vessel. Uh, with with uh, lined up like a train and with all, all of these blood cells inside of the, of, the, of the blood vessel, just going right through, captured in a, and locked up in time there. Uh, even the director of the Royal Trail Museum, the largest dinosaur museum in the world, has admitted, yep, usually most of the original bone is still present in a dinosaur fossil. So he admits that these dinosaur bones are not petrified rocks they are still organic bones. 
Here's what collagen looks like uh, under a microscope. And, and bones are made of an infusion of collagen, which provides a soft, flexible matrix, as well as a hydroxyapatite, which is a hardened bone mineral. And these two things together makes, make bones both rigid and flexible at the same time. So collagen, being a soft tissue, should decay really fast. Well, some scientists have estimated this and say, you know, some studies say collagen and bone should decay between 10 and 30,000 years. Some scientists say only 100,000 years. And the latest studies that have come out, scientists have admitted, well, we think that the longest that collagen can last in, in bones is between 300,000 years and 900,000 years. So if this is a dinosaur bone and we're looking at collagen in it, and it's still got color that we can see here, what is collagen doing in a dinosaur bone that's supposedly 65 million years old? It should all be gone by now. So if dinosaurs supposedly died out, you know, millions and millions of years ago, why do we have this collagen? So it should all be gone within less than a million years. But here we have 65 million years to supposedly when the dinosaurs went extinct and collagen outlasted the scientific projection by a factor of at least 65 times. Just does not make sense for an evolution worldview, uh, but it does for, for ours. So in conclusion about, about that piece, at least, um, are dinosaur bones 65 million years old or are they just 4,400 years old? You can see on my screen there that the last two bioorganics that they just found are cartilage and actual nerve cells. Right there at the, at the bottom of the screen, you can see those. Uh, we're, we're just about ready to wrap up here. Here's a, a mummified dinosaur called Leonardo. Uh, scientists have found intact skin and ligaments and tendons, and they cut open its gullet and found magnolia ferns still inside of its stomach and gullet. So they still found what this creature was eating and an Edmontosaurus is supposedly at least 65 million years old. How do you preserve those things for millions and millions of years? Here's another one that was discovered over 100 years ago. There's still encased skin impressions, large parts of the body. It's a mummified dinosaur. Here's Skippy. Uh, Skippy's supposedly 113 million years old, but you can still see intestines and colon, liver, muscles, and a windpipe that's still intact. It was rapidly sealed in a low oxygen environment right after, uh, right after the flood. Here's one that they just recently found, and they learned that this dinosaur mummy has 2,500 pounds of its original 3,000 pounds still there, and it still has intestines intact. There's no way that's millions and millions of years old. It died recently uh, during the flood. So when we look at this evidence mosaic, we have multiple different lines of evidences that are all pointing to the same thing. We have a huge extent of a fossil record, furious burial in mud and ash, dinosaurs buried in groups, mixed up with marine fossils, buried in many cases without young. We have lots and lots of fresh bioorganic materials. We still have carbon-14 found in dinosaur bones and dinosaur mummies. What does all this evidence lead to? I think it leads to a rapid, uh, recent catastrophic flood. So I think we will we will end there, and we'll see if I can take uh, any questions. I'll go ahead and stop sharing, and I'll go back to see if I can uh, have you guys read me some uh, some of the questions. Absolutely. Uh, all I can say, Doctor Biddle, is wow. <laughs> That is an amazing presentation. I know we, we covered a lot of stuff and it was pretty quick, but but hopefully it was okay. So no, it was awesome. It was awesome. Tons of great feedback. 
We've got nearly 100 people in the chat, and the uh, chat is very lively. Lots of great feedback, and I just want to encourage people to <clears throat> make sure to share around this content, share around this presentation, as the truth is so important. And that's what we're here to do, is defend the truth of biblical creation. Uh, that's Dr. great. So if, so if you want to choose a few of those questions yourself and and maybe pick out your favorites, because it looks like we got quite a few of them and, and ask the questions that that would be be great. But you you guys pick them. <laughs> <laughs> OK, you leave it up to us. We'll get yeah. through a few questions, because like last time, we'll try and wrap this up around the hour and 20 minute mark, hour and a half mark. Uh, one thing I'll say, Dr. Biddle, because a lot of kind of questions and objections came in that are kind of the same. It has to do with, uh, you know, what the critics would call the heat problem. But one thing that I noticed you pointed out uh, so beautifully in your presentation, Dan, is that we have this lush pre-flood world. And you you had images and, and pointed out these massive coal seams that exist, right? Which the critics on one hand will say we can't explain all the coal which I find funny because then they'll say, well, the flood would have produced too much heat. But wait a minute. Heat is a feature, not a bug of the flood, because the heat would be connected to a physical and chemical process that leads to the rapid production of this huge amount of coal and oil that we see on the uh, globe today that they say we can't explain. So in other words, the pre-flood world would be the perfect battery to absorb a lot of this heat uh, generated at the flood to produce things like coal, oil, and natural gas. Uh, I, I guess, what are your thoughts on that, uh, Dr. Biddle? Yes, I, I, I agree. In fact, there, there is actually some indications in some parts of the fossil record that could indicate that heat or boiling was part of the, the flood burial process that was happening to these creatures. And if you get with the, with the gray hair guys in the creation circles, the people with PhDs with dust on them that have been studying this stuff for <laughs> decades, they are collectively convinced on a phenomenon known as accelerated nuclear decay during the flood. They're all pretty much as a panel. If you get the conservative guys that really know what they're talking about, they're all at this time very, very convinced, well, at least the ones that, that I know, on accelerated nuclear decay, which could explain some of the curvilinear spikes that we have in carbon-14 dating. It could explain a lot of the, the date layering that, that, that we see. So, because creationists are not afraid of relative dating, there's no problem with that. It's when you take the relative dating and convert it into calendar years that you make a whole host of assumptions. So I, I have no problem uh, believing that accelerated nuclear decay along with heat uh, was likely produced during the flood event. Well said, Dan. Well said. Um, so let me put this uh, this question up on screen then. This is a common one, uh, Dan. And I know that you've also answered it on your website too. So for more detailed and thorough answers, I definitely recommend people check out your website, which has been a great help. So here's the question up on screen, Dan. How did people, animals, and vegetation disperse around the world after the flood? Uh, the, the simplest way, to most condensed way to answer that is to say two things. Uh, land bridges and ice bridges. So you got to remember about within a hundred years after the flood, the ice age was probably in full peak. We don't, we don't know for sure, but we know that the, the mechanism for the ice age was the flood because you have a, a lot of heat. You have a evaporation from the water. You have 
aerosols being pushed up from volcanoes blocking the sun. We know that the Ice Age happened after the flood, and the result of that was pulling up a lot of the ocean water and locking it up into ice. In fact, I believe it was 90 meters different was the the the, the, the sea used to be you know, 90 meters lower than what it is now because the Ice Age, you've got all these things locked up in ice, and it's going to create exposed land bridges that were present then that are not present now. And if people could make it across things like the Siberian Strait, you can walk across those ice bridges. Uh, but basically, the elevation of the, of the ocean was much different uh, than it is today, providing a lot, of, a lot of places and a lot of stretches of land for animals and people to go to places like Australia, the animals to disperse. And of course, when you look at the animals, what do they do? They eat food, they walk 10 miles, and then they excrete it, and then the, the seed is coming out. So it's God's natural repopulation technique. It's just amazing what happens with that. So it, it would be a very, very rapid process, just taking hundreds of years for the animals and, and, uh, and the, the plant uh, vegetation to go around and spread. But I think the big mechanism for it would be the ice age and how it changed the ocean levels and what land bridges it would have made that were, were uh, icy in nature. That's a great answer, uh, Dr. Biddle. I appreciate that. And uh, Matt, um, was there a question that you wanted to uh, ask next? Yeah. The question is, how did the ark survive the cracking of the planet when the fountains of the great deep were broken open? Great question. Um, and here's where it gets a little bit interesting, where you have to interject a little bit of faith. And I have no problem doing that. Just the, the very fact that the Bible says uh, two clues in the Genesis account. It says, first of all, on the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken open. That was a divine act. Uh, in fact, some experts have said it could have even been a change to the sun that created a corresponding change to the Earth's mantle that resulted in all the fountains of the great deep bursting open on the same day. So that was a divine act. The second thing that's very interesting in the Genesis account is that the Bible says that when Noah had loaded up on the animals, the Lord himself shut them in. So someone closed the door. Okay, so God came in, intervened, uh, and slammed the, slammed the door shut. I, I believe that's what the text is, is actually stating. So if the, the, the fountains of the great deep are cracking open like that, there would be some parts of the world that would be very torrential with huge swells, huge tsunamis coming up. Well, at the same time, the reciprocal effect of that would be some areas or some pockets of the ocean not having a lot of turbulence. I don't personally think that the ancient building of the ark that was only plastered with an epoxy-like resin, you know, pine resin or, or tree resin on the inside and the outside with planks and everything, was made to go be like a, a modern steel ocean liner. Uh, I, I don't think it probably would withstand a lot of different storms, but some people have simulated it with a level 10 on the Beaufort storm scale and, and indicated that at least the dimensions were sound enough that it wouldn't topple or turn. Uh, like the Gilgamesh uh, arc definitely would, because the Gilgamesh arc is a cube, it would have toppled. I think when you get to Buford Storm level eight, the cube starts rotating, the Gilgamesh cube would start rotating around. So all the arc had to do would, would be to find a place in the ocean that wasn't where all the action is going on, where all the subduction's going on and the volcanism going on. God, I think, had to have his hand 
supernaturally and guiding where the ark was going to float and where it was going to be because i have no doubt there were parts of the world that would have been either too hot or boiling or coming down with too much ash for the ark to to survive so but it is also uh noteworthy to say that the ark didn't have to be super seaworthy it just had to float for you know 300 some days Amen. Well said. I completely agree, uh, Dr. Biddle. It wasn't built to have to uh, go anywhere. It just had to float, withstand the flood. And the Bible indicates that God is the Lord over the flood. So I completely agree with you there. Good point. And, uh, and, and there's storms going on in the world right now, and I'm not feeling anything from it. So I think you nailed it when you said, you know, parts of the world during the flood would be experiencing a lot of action and other parts, not so much. So, yeah. But it was a divine event. God was intervening. That that's that's for sure. Amen. So, Amen. Well said. So here's a question that comes in from Cool Jesus. I got it up on screen here. Uh, a question like this obviously could take a, an entire presentation. I know there's a lot of flood uh, geologists doing research on this. Uh, we've had a few uh, flood researchers on to discuss where they think maybe the flood boundary is. Uh, do you have any thoughts or anything on that? The exact question, uh, Dan, is can you ask Dan where he thinks the flood boundary is in the geologic column when the fountains broke loose? Uh, the debate about the boundary makes the flood model hard for me. Any thoughts, opinions on that one, uh, Dr. Bill? Sure. I, I think I'm, I'm less particular about where the flood boundary is than I'm about some of its implications, because if you set the flood boundary in certain locations, some creationists have to speed up vertical evolution to explain where they think it fits with the flood, with the, with the geological column. Um, I live in California, and I've been to some very, very significant uh, geological locations. I can show you places where the Jurassic layers are on top of the Cretaceous layers, the opposite to what you would expect, where there's there's mixed up boundaries. I can show you areas that are just fascinating. California is the hardest geological state, I would say, to try to figure out from, from the from a flood geology standpoint. And quite frankly, I challenge secular geologists and a lot of creation geologists alike to explain to me, okay, well, what's what's the ice age features of the geology here? or what's the flood feature uh, of the geology here. It's very, very difficult to figure out. So I'm skeptical of people who come down really hard in a model and say, we know exactly where the flood zenith is, exactly where the boundary is. Um, I, I think there's a, there's a, lot, of, a lot of different models that would work for me. I would refer you to a guy that studied a lot more than I have named Chris Roop. And if you send me an email, I can get you in contact with Chris, who's made a a, a good go at studying the the flood boundary and its implications um but i i'm not a, a young earth evolutionist i certainly don't don't believe that but i've seen enough of geology through fresh eyes as a behavioral scientist not as a trained geologist for me to be very scientifically skeptical of anyone's certain model where they can come up and draw a line and say that was the flood zenith and i'm sure about it so uh, I'm, I'm scientifically skeptical against either one of those camps right now. And our movie is going to tactfully steer around the flood boundary and not get into it too directly. But I, I do side with, um, with ICR's position so far and where they come down on the flood boundary topic. I think uh, Dr. Tim Cleary has is, is studied that issue very, very well. But, uh, but Chris Roop is the guy that understands both sides and the implications of both sides. Absolutely. Great answer. Uh, Chris Roop did a fantastic job in Contested Bones, which I've got over to my left. And yeah. Tim Clary in um, Carved in Stone, 
another great book that I highly recommend. That's so. a great book. Yeah, yeah. great book. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Yeah. So, um, Matt, if you wanted to grab the next uh, question here, brother. Yeah, the question is, how come we don't find animals such as sharks and marine mammals in the Cambrian layers? Okay, so what happened, what, what the best way to explain this is with a graphic, which I don't have it right in front of me now, but consider this. You've got a, a Pangea-like formation. I keep saying Pangea-like because creationists don't necessarily like the classic Pangea. It could have been a Rodinia configuration, Pangea-like formation. You've got it there, and all, on the same day, all the fountains of the Great Deep break open. So you have a lot of shallow seas, you've got some deep seas, and you've got the land masses, which were all pushed, which were all pushed together initially. When the fountains of the Great Deep start breaking apart, you're going to have the shallow seas buried first. That's just the way the physics are going to work with the tsunamis, the subduction, the seafloor spreading. A lot of the shallow seas where we find things like trilobites are going to be snapshot buried in their layers without a lot of other types of creatures and varieties mixed in with them. As the flood progresses and it starts coming up beyond the shallow seas and onto land, then we're going to start getting into what's called the Zuni Sloss Mega Sequence, Sloss, that's S-L-O-S-S, because if you go through geology, there's six Sloss Mega Sequences that we can tap into with oil core boreholes. Tim Clary's done a lot of work with, with that with ICR. He's dug into uh, data with 1,800 oil core bore, boreholes, and they've established that in the Zuni formation, which is stage four of all those Sloss mega sequences, it's only then when you start seeing terrestrial or land-dwelling creatures show up in the fossil record. So the flood, uh, the, the peaking stage of the flood, the Zuni was probably around day 150 where the peak was hitting. It was building up, building up. It's starting with the, the shallow sleeves. Everything on the ocean floor would have been buried first with underwater mud tsunamis, and that's where we find the trilobites. It's where the Cambrian layers are, are found. Then it's going to start progressively going up, and that's why we find mammals buried at the top because a lot of those things could run, go for high cover, whatever whatever they they, they needed. But that's um that's a flood mechanics answer to that question. That's a great response, uh, Doctor Biddle, and I, I frequently point out as well, and as you put it, the order of the of the fossils is the burial order of the flood. So the the, the flood point. begins in the yeah. ocean rips up all those marine creatures, buries them on the continents, and then we'd have them being the first creatures buried. And as the, the, the floodwaters rose higher, you get the burial of the land animals. And that's exactly what uh, what we find. So Good point. what I'll do here, Dr. Biddle, because I want to respect your time and we got a great audience and about a thousand questions. I'm going to pick out one one last question here. We'll uh, We'll engage it a bit and then we'll uh, we'll kind of call it a day. You've been so generous with your time. This has been an awesome presentation. And right. you've got a lot of videos on this specific question. So I'll put it up on screen here so everybody can see. Dan, so the question is, what are your thoughts on the so-called transitional forms evolutionists like to point to in the fossil record? couple examples, Tiktaalik, the whale series, uh, Archaeopteryx, for example. Okay, so there's, a, there's a, a big picture answer to this and a microscopic little answer to this. So let's go with the, the big answer first. The big answer is this. As, as a scientist, someone who's trained to do research, if evolution were, were true, 
um, I would expect to see, like Darwin said, countless numbers of transitional forms that are not only high in frequency, but obvious in appearance. If humans evolve, for, for example, you've got to give me much more than a pickup truck's bed worth of supposedly transitional fossils going from ape-like creatures to human humans. That's, that's all I've got. So if you take the most crucial thing to evolution, human evolution, and you take all of their transitional forms that supposedly leading from ape-like creatures to us, and all of that amassed evidence can only go into the back of a pickup truck or even a more conservative thing would say into a bathtub, you're going to have to show me a lot more than that. I would want thousands and thousands of transitional forms, and I would want them to be obvious in their appearance. And that's exactly the opposite to what we find. Charles Darwin himself was completely complex by this because he said that's the, the most obvious challenge to his theory is like, we don't have them. And he expected over, over future digging, we would expect to find a lot more, but that's definitely what is not uh, that has not uh, happened at all. We, we don't have the countless different types of transitional uh, fossils. But then here comes the worst part for, for evolutionists. When you do pick one of their supposed transitional fossils like Tiktaalik or whale evolution or, or something like Archaeopteryx, we wouldn't even begin to describe the level of evidence. Just pick one like Tiktaalik. You can't even get evolutionists to agree that it's a transitional form. Uh, it's just one fossil that they found <laughs> that supposedly spans, you know, 10 million years. And they've got that they've got footprints ab ab above it that that are 10 million years out of order, according to the evolutionary fossil record. So when you take one and specifically look at it and you want it to stand firm, it just falls away like a, a strand of hair. It's It's really nothing. So I think the weakest argument for transitional fossils for me personally the the most the weak spot for, for evolutionists would be whale evolution it's incredibly weak when you say that we went from a pachycetus like running whale-like creature or running wolf-like creature all the way to a a, a 60 ton blue whale i mean <laughs> give me a break you have to make 18 different physiological changes to go from a running wolf-like mammal to an underwater blue whale that's you know that, that that's doing all the things that it's doing underwater and and even evolutionists have said yeah we admit there's not enough time for enough mutations to happen to go from a ma a, a running mammal to a blue whale so they they admitted on on that front alone so um but yeah our website has lots on on uh, transitional fossils great point we need to see thousands and thousands not just a few interesting mosaics where yeah. if they found the platypus yeah. in the fossil record and it was extinct, they, you know, make all sorts of uh, interpretations based on evolutionary imagination <laughs> on what, you know, that's evolving into what the platypus has evolved from. So, yes, uh, great point. Great response, Dan. I really appreciate it. Actually, let me hand it over to Matt. Anything you wanted to add, uh, brother, with that being the last question? Oh, the whale. Uh, yeah, the uh, the transition that you were talking about, they've actually found the reverse order of that in the geologic column as well. So it's kind of hard to say one evolved <laughs> to the next when there's discrepancies of finding one before the other. Yeah, you're right. Very yeah. weak evidence. And that's one of their favorites. That's one of their go-to. So it's pretty funny. So true. Very, very interesting. Well, I think, I think the, 
I think the fatal blow, Dan, to whale evolution, as you put it, is the waiting time problem. Even according to them and their time frame, a few million years is not enough time to fixate so many uh, necessary beneficial mutations to take something like a pachycetus into a fully aquatic mammal. That's a great point. Yeah. And, and many very smart evolutionists have studied that problem and run the math on it, penciled it out and said, you know what? It doesn't work. You have to have way too many mutations to go from a wolf or a pig or a hippopotamus. I mean, again, if it were going to be a sound theory, why do they trace um, whale evolution back to a feline-like creature or a bear or a hippopotamus or a mammal like Pachycetus, like a wolf? I mean, if you look at the, the evolutionary stories that come from natural history museums, I think they've gone back to five different animals at the family level, hypothesizing where these whales come from. And it would be a very consistent story if it happened. You wouldn't have to be grasping at straws. Amen. Well said. Well said, Dr. Right. Biddle. Well, again, I want to thank you so much for giving us your time for another fantastic presentation. Uh, last year, you gave us one on human evolution, which was incredibly helpful, irrefutable, in my opinion, and another uh, irrefutable right. presentation here. Second uh, Peter 3, people in the last days are going to deny the world that then was being overflowed with water perish because the evidence is overwhelming. Uh, I want to hand it to you, Dr. Biddle, for some final words, final thoughts. You know, I, I think let's just end there. The second Peter three passage to me is very, very important because Peter with the stroke of his pen says above all else, know this. He's, he's fading out. He's writing the last things he's going to be writing. And he says, Hey guys, above all else, know this, that in the last days, scoffers will come scoffing saying, where is this coming? Where is the second coming? Where is the rapture? When's this thing going to happen? Because every sense that you know, our sister, you know, ancestors were existing, everything from of old, millions and millions of years ago, it's all been going on. He's saying the idea of uniformitarianism is going to replace two things: creation ex nihilo, or creation out of nothing, and that the the same world that then was was cataclysmically destroyed by water. So he says they're going to intentionally deny those two things in the end times, that the world was formed out of water by a creator God and that was cataclysmically destroyed by that same water. And you can hardly open up a college textbook today without seeing that. So what does that say about the time we're living in? Amen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, thanks. It it's been great spending time with you guys. This is wonderful. We'll have to do it again. Maybe when the, the movie's about to come out or something, we'll, we'll give another promo and plug but I'm, I'm glad to see your youtube channel growing and you guys should uh, keep it up i appreciate it dan again thank you so much for all you do thank you for another uh, awesome presentation and we're really looking forward to the um to your movie so and, and to the audience thank you for tuning in thank you for so much good feedback and questions and input please share around this content the truth is important matt thank you for being here as co-host and again thank you so much dan god bless all everybody right.